Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 350th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's always overprinted and underpriced. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I am your host, James Tilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co host this week, for the first time ever, is Commander in Chief Jason E. Alt at Jason E. Alt on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. Before we jump in, I want to remind listeners that this show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby and me. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Jason, what is on our agenda this week? Well, James, this week we have our usual four segments. First, we'll kick off things with segment one, the MTGO Metagame Week in Review. After that, we'll move on to segment two, where we'll talk about the top movers of the week and discuss why we believe the cards saw significant gains. Then we're on to segment three, our cards to watch, where you and I will share the key cards that we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, to wrap things up, we'll have segment four, our topic of the week. This week, we will discuss the Bank of America downgrade and the Brothers War set review. We will discuss both of these things. (laughs) All right, so with that out of the way, let's move on over to our first segment. We're going to look at that MTGO metagame week in review. Taking a look at this week's results, uh, I'm sure your co-host over at Brainstorm Brewery will be pretty stoked to hear that Merfolk took down the Modern Challenge this past Saturday. I don't know why DJ would care about that, but sure. <laughs> yeah, so- uh, he has his, his gills tingle every time a Merfolk deck does something. Oh, Corbin. It doesn't help that he's on coverage. We're talking about Corbin Hostler, by the way. <laughs> it doesn't help that he's on coverage, so every time Merfolk does something, I get a text message. Yeah, so I mean, according to Aspiring Spike, he's been bumping into Merfolk all over the place when he's been testing his various mad cap creations uh, on his Twitch stream. So it's picking up some steam in the format, and here we have it taking down uh, a challenge against uh, some pretty tough decks. Second place was Hammer Time. Uh, Mono White Hammer Time was in third. Black Red Scam, uh, an emergent deck over the last six months, in fourth. Burn in fifth, the perennial uh, contender. And then we have the Jund Sacrifice deck showing up again from last week in seventh. And Green Tron in eighth. By far the most interesting deck here is this Mono White Midrange Ephemerate deck. Uh, so is this just like value blink? The, the kind of <laughs> Exactly. So I, that, I love when people do EDH stuff in other formats. It's like, see, this is why I've been doing that. Yeah, this is this is nothing like anything anyone has seen in modern lately. This is four solitude, sure, normal for modern. Four Ranger Captain of Eos, a card that was heavily tested out of MH1's release period and then faded from the meta. Two Ambitious Farmhand, a former standard staple making its way into modern here. A Giant Killer, same kind of thing. This is the one that destroys target creature with power four greater when it goes on an adventure for three mana, and then later comes into play as a one-two that can tap a creature for two. Not exactly the stats you're expecting in a modern deck. 
Thraben Inspector as a one of three Sun Titan, a modern uh, staple of days past. Akami of False Hope, three Esper Sentinel, four Wall of Omens, and three Skyclave Apparition. A card that hasn't <laughs> isn't really even doing very much work in Pioneer right now, let alone in Modern. My and, goodness. And then tying this. tying this all together is Abiding Grace, another mo- uh, a Modern Horizons 2 card, two and a white uh, for an enchantment. At the beginning of your end step, choose one. You gain one life or return target creature card with mana value one from your graveyard to the battlefield. This is exactly the kind of card you'd expect in a white deck if that white deck was Soul Sisters. But this isn't a Soul Sisters deck. Yeah, but I I really think Soul Sisters still could potentially be a thing. Like, haven't I seen somebody was running a um, Pattern of Rebirth deck? I mean, the only cards in here that they can get back with the Abiding Grace, because it's limited to the one casting cost stuff, is yeah. the Giant Killer, the Thraben Inspector, the Kami of False Hope, and the Esper Sentinel. Yeah. Now, they also splash a little into blue to get three Teferi Time Raveler. So four Ephemerate, and then three Emeria the Sky Ruin which is allowing them, once they get to seven planes, to return target creatures from their graveyard to the battlefield uh, every upkeep. And this is just like white mid-rangey value town and would be very... I would not be surprised if this was the only time this year this showed up in a top eight in a challenge. It's so cool, though. I really like it. I mean, if if they took down a challenge with this deck, it would be very impressive. Yeah, I almost kind of like, did I say Pattern of Rebirth? I meant Proclamation of Rebirth. I kind of like that kind of a deck, but it was just, it was so boring. Like you would win with Millstone or something really terrible like that. I like that this actually has some gas. Like they went big with the Solitudes and the um, the Sun Titans and stuff like that. I like it. Over in the Pioneer Challenge on the Sunday, November 13th, we had Arclight Phoenix in 8th, Green Red Midrange in 7th and 2nd, Lotus Field Combo in 6th and 3rd, Black Red Midrange in 5th, Blue White Control in 4th, and the whole thing here was taken down by Green White Angels, which is the first time I remember seeing this at the top, let alone, well, even in the top 8 of a Pioneer Challenge, let alone the first place deck. However, I have played against this deck at least 300 times on Arena, because on Arena in Historic, you see this deck all the time climbing the ladder. Do you ladders. think they misregistered, or do you think this was a choice? <laughs> I, I mean, this is definitely definitely a choice. There's no Historic on Magic Online, right? So this is, this is just what they thought was appropriate for the format. The, the thing that's blowing my mind here is that this is, you know, almost card for card, the deck you play against all the time over there where they they drop uh an early giada into something like a bishop of wings or a splendid angel they skyclave apparition the first thing you play and then later they've got a righteous valkyrie that buffing their team plus two plus two to do a, a half of an elish norn impression and if you manage to wipe their board they come back with a collected company to to rebuild the only thing that's missing here that you often see uh, in historic is the combo with Heliod and I forget what the green tree is. I think it's a tree folk that comes into play and creates an infinite combo with Heliod where it, Heliod. it becomes infinitely large or something. Hmm. And and that's absent here entirely. Anyway, green white angels deck, deck to keep your eye on. I guess the only thing they've picked up recently for this build is two Sarah Paragon, very good value recursion based creature out of Dominaria United. Fantastic art on that on that card as well. 
Moving on over to segment two, top paper movers of the week. We've got only non-foil on the list this week uh, in what is otherwise a fairly quiet week in the hype cycle leading up to the release of Brothers War, where most people's money is pointed at that stuff. Mirrodin Besiege out of MH1, 250 to 375, 50% gains, largely, I'm sure, on the back of all of the Artifact Matters hype with regards to the Brothers War. We've got Foils of Sensor, the cyclable force spike out of Amon Ket, going from 450 to 750. I would imagine that's blue-white control usage, in, mostly in Pioneer that's driving that. Gemstone Cavern Foils out of Time Spiral Remastered. Uh, went from 150 to 220, which is really just the last couple of copies in the mid-hundreds draining out off TCG player. Yeah. I went back and checked, and even, like, between the original foils from Time Spiral and the Time Spiral Remastered foils, they basically don't exist. It's it's only got the two two printings in foil, and they are just gone. So, a a card absolutely ripe for another reprint, presumably with some kind of premium treatment down the road. I mean, if they are even aware of something like this draining. I mean, this is 80,000 decks reported on EDH Rec, and I'm sure sees plenty of play in the CDH scene. I'm a seller at this price. I'm sure I've got a couple of... I might even have a Russian foil of Gemstone Caverns Ooh. that I pulled out of Tyspaw Remastered Boxes, so I should definitely double-check on Ship. that and get it up for sale. <laughs> Charcoal Diamonds out of 7th Edition foils from 65 to 110. That's just... Seventh foils doing the seventh foil yeah. thing. It's not particularly in demand card, and they've got you know affordable foils of it. So it's just I don't know the slow steady. Yeah, yeah. Just what seventh grind. edition foils do yeah, on seventh. Foils. I added nothing, but I took a long time to do it. Sorry. <laughs> Synapse sliver foil extended art. The secret layer include in some of the recent drops went from thirty to sixty. Some of those slivers are relatively easy to find in the secret layers, and some of them are not. And the ones that are not have uh, done have climbed hot and heavy as people have have flagged them uh, as being in short supply. It's unclear when we will stop getting those from Wizards and Secret Layers. I think everybody feels still feels a little burned from all of the War of the Spark stained glass planeswalkers flooding the market for better part of 18 months. I guess we'll see as uh, the next several sets of Secret Layers unfold. I wanted those to remain special. It, it felt a little perverse just them continuing to give those out. Yep, I agree. Dead and Gone foils out of Planar Chaos, 25 to 54. You occasionally see this, and I think it's Crashing Rhino's decks in Modern and a few other places in that format. And these have gotten hard to come by as the occasional Modern player has sucked them up into their their foil deck, which is, of course, a a bit of an oddity in that format. Reckless Reckless Stormseeker out of Midnight Hunt foils went from $3 to $9.00. It looks like it's being played in the green-red mid-range deck in Pioneer that had two copies in the top eight this week. Yeah, that'll do it. There's yeah, yeah. It's a it, it's a it's a four of there. You do things like let your Sky Sovereign attack right away, or your Eska's Chariot, or your Bone Crusher Giants and Love Struck Beast, that kind of thing. Plasmancer Surge Foils at a forty k. This is a three three flyer for four that searches up a swamp. If I'm not mistaken, it's only a basic swamp. So it's a it's a three three flyer that goes and gets a basic swamp not a particularly black ability and and not a very sexy card overall i think this is just people going after really cheap surge foils i've seen numerous pro traders talking about any surge foil near a dollar they've just picked some up just in case Um, but i don't love this one finally on the at the top of this list we have shape anew out of scars of mirrodin uh 
one dollar one or two dollars there was probably a fairly steep ramp from one to five i would guess when this kicked off and then aspiring spike was tabling a modern deck with shape anew and now the cheapest foil on tcg player is 30 bucks however market price in terms of prices paid has not exceeded five dollars so this really just becomes a question of whether anybody's actually going to table that deck or whether it's just going to be one of these decks that spike puts on stream for a few days and then gets bored of and moves on top magic online movers of the week pretty straightforward rogren trium out of ikoria sees both pioneer and modern play and shows up here and there in legacy and sees tons of edh play on magic online it's gone from 8.63 ticks to 10.7 that's 24 percent gains this week we've got archive trap out of zendikar rising 2.4 ticks to 3.65 that's 52 percent gains presumably on the back of being played in blue black mill for modern Embercleave is seeing a little bit more play in Pioneer these days via that green-red mid-range deck as well, and just uh, as it moved the Stormseeker, it has also moved Embercleave from 2.5 tickets to 4 tickets, 58% gains there. And then Aserac the Archlich, 1.6 tickets to 3.16, continuing on from the boost it got last week, presumably on the leg- play in the Legacy deck that has been running that card. What's the... What card does that combo with in Legacy, where you enter the dungeon infinitely? Oh, I don't know what what the the combo is. I haven't taken a look at it lately. It, it's it's literally a two card combo. It's a Sarah rack and something else, and I, you just enter the dungeon and until you draw your whole deck. Mm, oh, it's Aluren. I think that's what oh uh, what Aluren. Derek said the other day. So if you have any <laughs> copies of one hundred dollar Aluren. A Sirarak could make those 120. You're welcome. <laughs> Moving on over to segment three, cards to watch. I'll kick things off with, with a pick I don't think you're going to look down your nose too far at. Basilix Collar, Foil Extended Arts from Ooh. Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate is by far the best looking version of this card that's ever been presented because everything else has been pretty straightforward in the regular frame. They finally gave us a Foil Extended Art in... Uh, CLB and they are currently sitting around three bucks the overall inventory level on TCG player on this is not very deep at all I think it was something like 40 or 45 listings left no particularly deep pools of inventory and I'm thinking like with this being in 50,000 EDH rec decks Gearson is a top five commander right now this is a easy include in that deck because you want all your pingers to start machine gunning the table for these yeah. to go, say, 3 to $8 or $10 over the course of the next year seems pretty straightforward. $3 on a non-foil. If you told me it was $3 for the non-foil, I'd be like, that sounds pretty attractive. So I realize that like the, the collector boosters have sort of like ruined what it means to be a foil, but I, I still think that when something pops, there's still a little cachet to it being foil. So. Well, and if you and if and if you're the kind of player that either doesn't like foils or you know doesn't that prefers to uh, spec on non-foils, you can get the foil and non-foil prices are very tightly linked here, as has been standard in the booster fund era. And the in, usually I will lean towards the foils if the inventory on the foils is a lot lower. So like for something like say thieving skydiver that I've gone in on four or five times over the last year, the Foil extended arts are just much closer to go working up the ramp based on the inventory level than the yeah. extended arts. But in the case of this Basilisk collar, I think it's like 42 listings for the foils and 46 for the non-foils. And the non-foils are a little bit cheaper. So if you prefer to go that route, there's definitely room to go there. 
art on this is amazing. It's like a tight end shot of a nasty looking basilisk with a big jeweled collar on. It's a good card. You're going to find use for it in your EDH decks pretty easily. I assumed that the basilisk collar was a collar called the basilisk collar because it gave you some sort of basilisk powers. But they're like, no, it's literally a collar that goes on a basilisk. I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, that makes me think that the art direction was not particularly strong when handed <laughs> off to the artist. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Just do basilisks and collars. There's your notes. Get out of here. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah. the magic art director. That's how he talks. Yeah, it's like monster boots as a card and you'd give them no art direction and they hand <laughs> they hand in like a monster wearing boots instead of boots that turn you into a monster <laughs> the boots that the monster wears monster boots i didn't say monsters boots you know all right what's your first card to watch here uh personally i like word of invention um i always like word of invention it just feels like one of those cards that you make money on a lot because you're like, hey, this is better in standard than people think. And then it goes up and you're like, mm, I told you so. And then it goes down at rotation. You're like, I think this is better in ideation, people think. Well, I'm sick of being right about this card. But I got a feeling that Urza Lord Protector, one of the five Urzas printed in the last week, that is the most popular deck from the set that it's in. And uh, Word of Invention is a card that gets played in nearly all of those decks. Uh, they're going to do a whole year of artifact stuff, right? So why not um, buy artifact stuff? Se- seems pretty reasonable. I-, I do question whether it's the regular Kaladesh version we're going- supposed to be going after based on the inventory levels or whether it's the secret layer D&D 80s cartoon art foils. If you look I mean, at that's, the, lower, the pr- that, that's lower inventory, but I, I, don't, I don't like to endorse art I don't like. And this this art is dorky as yeah. as fuck, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I hate to tell people like, yeah, go buy an ugly thing that uh, that I would never own so that maybe reciprocally my copies will go up. I, that feels scummy to me. So I think I like regular Kaladesh. It's the cheapest version and it's the least ugly. Yeah. It makes perfect sense to include an almost any blue artifact deck in EDH and there are tons and more reasons all of a sudden to be doing that. The whole next year. Um, with... So anything artifacty? Yeah, I'm not sure how much like the rest of the Phyrexian saga is going to lean into the artifact themes. I mean, to some extent, it has to well, because the Phyrexians are are often artifacts themselves. Yeah. But bottom line, if one of the blue commanders works its way into the top five, top ten here on your site, then War of Invention is certainly going to see plenty enough play. I'm just concerned that there's. A bunch of regular versions of this sitting around and not that many premiums. And there's only 26 left listings left of the Secret Layer Borderless Foils, as much as I agree with you that the art is not uh, Well, <laughs> not and that seems like the sort of thing is like, 26 copies means one person can cause some problems. Well, 26 listings. There's probably more closer to 50 copies. And my, my thinking on these is that you probably snap them off four or five dollars and that you might end up getting out of them at fifteen or twenty. Whereas, you know, if you if you do get in on War Invention at your two fifty and it only gets to five or six instead of seven, then including shipping and time spent, it may not be worth it. However, there could be a very could very easily be a solid buy list play. Oh yeah. That's that's kinda what I like to I like to rent cards from Card Kingdom for a premium and send them back later. Yeah, actually, I wrote big about of, that. Big fan of that myself. I wrote about that today. Actually, um, I I compared 
some of the cards that I spec'd on today to something like uh, Teferi's Puzzle Box that just keeps making you money on over and over again. And uh, I, I think Word of Invention is one of those cards. I've already made money on it twice, so why not? All right, so moving on to my next one here. Here's another card that has a mystery booster version, the original version from 15 years back, and then a premium secret layer version that I think is probably the play. I'm talking about Reki History of Kamigawa. The borderless foils are currently around $20. We're down to 17 listings on TCG Player. That works out to something close to 50 copies as well. Uh, this is an important card right now in EDH because you almost always play it in your Joda the Unifier deck, where every time you cast a legendary spell, you draw a card. It's probably in 80 to 100% of those decks when they're built correctly. And there's just not that many of these lying around. This secret layer has been out for a little while now, yeah. and I could very easily see these going 20 to 40, given that they have pretty sweet art. I, I, honestly, Reki's going to be good until they change course because they're giving us 74 new legendary creatures on a monthly basis. So you can tell me that like legendary matter stuff won't be huge. Even if they stop right now, we've got so many legendary creatures in the pipe that you're just going to have like 25 legendary creatures in every 99. So stuff like this, like just accidentally gets good. You don't have to focus on it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, and it's also it's also also worth flagging that out of your top six currently on EDH Rec, which is Gearson, Joda, Ur-Dragon, Lathril, Bellacor, and Atraxa. Is that of the last yeah, week jo- or month? This is past... I'm looking at past month. Okay. And past week is not tremendously different. I think Atraxa and Miriam switch, but otherwise it's the same thing. You know, Joda, yes, auto-include, but also often included in Atraxa Planeswalker builds, and she's currently you know, back in, in the top 10 lately. So I do run a copy of Reki in, in my attracts of PWs and yeah, between that and Joda, that's a lot of pressure on the only premium version of this card and your final selection. sir. I mean, this, there's nothing new that caused me to feel good about this card, but deep gnome Terramancer is just a white staple. It's just a card that there's no reason not to play it in a magic, the gathering deck. Um, they have, uh, I think this is a $15 card. And even if it's not a $15 card, it's a $10 card. And you can get these for like six-ish right now. Uh, it just seems like a card that's a little bit tough to reprint because what's going to happen is they're more likely going to make a 10 to 15% better version of this card rather than reprint it. And the thing is, I think if there's a 10 to 15% better version of this card, you run both. This isn't a card you cut for a slightly better card. It's that good. So when you have a card like that, there are fewer ways to lower its price, you know, other than like a strict reprinting of this. And that would have to happen before they print a better version of it. The, the only thing yeah. I have to say about Deep Gnome Terramancer is that it, it's its price has has fallen pretty consistently out of the gate it started around twenty dollars oh yeah, order, yeah. And they're currently available around five or six the reason for that is it comes out of the party time deck that everybody has been cracking to sell singles from and that hinges on the presence of black market connections in that deck so if we're looking at the timeline for when deep gnome terramancer might pick up speed i think we're probably in the 18 to 24 month area just because you've got gaming company with 300 copies on here banana stand has 235 nice little uh 
There's always money in that. Uh, yeah. Nice little reference there. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of deep deep inventory on these, and I happen to know that given conversation between all the pro traders the last six months, there must be I don't know two three thousand party time decks in people's closets waiting to come out and play. Gross. So yeah, there's it's gonna it's gonna be a little while. That deck is chock full of value, but everybody knows it, and so every time Amazon puts them on sale, people buy more, and the people that are operating on TCG Player via direct are you know flipping singles when the singles make sense to flip. So I like the card. Uh, I think it's gonna take a little while to get there. I don't mind waiting. If you read my articles, and why don't you? But if you read my articles, uh, I don't mind waiting. On the stuff that I think it has a pretty low reprint risk. I think Deep Gnome Terramancer has a low reprint risk, so I don't mind taking an 18 to 24 a month outlook on this. I know some people feel like, oh, having my money tied up for that long is, uh, isn't what I'm about, but I kind of like stuff that just makes sense to me, if that makes sense to you, right? Probably the two biggest risks here are a nicer looking version in a secret layer or a reprint right into a commander deck. Like if they if they drop this into a precon anywhere in the next eighteen months, then it's destroyed as a spec. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't seem likely to me, but it's a, it's always possible. It, the best defense it has is that it's referencing the D and D IP and not the core IP of the game, and so they may or may not be comfortable throwing it in. I used I used to think that was a thing, and they just have shown that they really just don't seem to care. We'll see. Well, I mean, it's not like they—it's not like they've dropped a a Stranger Things card into a commander deck or anything. Yeah, uh, not that there would have been time for them to have done that, but yeah, I take your point. I mean, now that they've challenged the reserve list, oh, surely, surely anything it is sounds possible. like you want to go into the main topic. <laughs> there are still some things that are more or less likely, is I guess what I'm saying. Uh, sure, we can move on over to our topic of the week. There was a Bank of America stock down. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask that you call it Bofa, uh, okay, because I'm that. unprofessional. Sure, and I I will giggle. So there was giggle. a Bofa stock downgrade for Hasbro stock this week, and the notes associated with the downgrade that were issued by the analyst involved struck anyone that was really paying attention and knows the finance world decently as being it just sounded like it sounded like a summary of Dan Bach's tweets yeah that that was that was exactly what struck me immediately was it not, not just Dan but like just the general zeitgeist of me too the ma- the magic twitter community perhaps including you and others and the problem with that is that it didn't really get to the core of why Hasbro vis-a-vis magic sales and profit patterns might be in trouble. And it was it was extra interesting to me because I actually do think that Hasbro deserves a downgrade because I don't think that the company is particularly well run. And I do think that there are limits to how much they can boost magic sales without growing the player. Base. Oh, yeah. Well, they're... <laughs> Magic's not going to make up for the fact that they're trying to um, get people to buy Transformers merch 15 years after the Michael Bay movie and Nerf guns in the year of our Lord 2K22. 
Like, I, I, you're really good at making new versions of Monopoly, but like <laughs> making people go see a movie based on Battleship or Rock'em Sock'em Robots didn't really work out. So you don't get the Hasbro cinematic universe you were hoping for. So really, at this point, it's like, hey, we bought an asset. Can we squeeze this asset hard enough to stem the bleeding and hopefully people next year will realize that they want angry birds monopoly. I, I, I don't know what Hasbro's doing. I, I don't know what their plan is as a company, but I really kind of preferred it when wizards of the coast was responsible for wizards of the coast and not for a dinosaur corporation that hasn't had a new product since the slinky. That's just how I feel about it. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance in the conversation around magic and how it is managed by hasbro and where it's likely headed they are a dinosaur toy company they're i've said many times they're basically an 80s retailer who's trying to figure out the digital age and doesn't really get it a lot of their experiments with launching their own media studio didn't go well and they they pulled back on it arena has not has done well but not nearly as well as they were hoping it would where, you know, they thought they might be able to turn the corner and turn into the next Hearthstone, and it's, you know, far from that. They are, it's, it's not a game that has crossed into the mainstream so much as it has expanded the overall audience for the brand, which is part of the goal. And it's, it, it's weird, because I hear things like, oh, like, 50% more people play Magic the Gathering now than played WoW at its peak. It, it felt like everybody knew World of Warcraft even as just like a, a, a reference. It was like, oh, that guy plays World yep. of Warcraft. For whatever reason, Magic just never felt like the same thing. Yeah, like they've probably referenced Magic the Gathering a few times on Saturday Night Live, but it's it's definitely not something that's like embedded in, in the heart of Western culture um, from the last 50 years. So here's the, here's the thing. They have for sure increased the number of product SKUs. They are making more magic stuff than they ever have before. It's not actually clear to what extent that has become a problem, if it has at all. The way you would define that from their perspective, for putting aside the feelings of the players who generally just want everything to be worth a zero unless they own well, it. In which case and by the players, you mean like the most enfranchised 0.1% who are on Twitter complaining? Sure. Yeah. Because Mark Rosewater's like, hey, uh, I didn't like this, but we did a bunch of surveys and apparently 75% of the people who have ever tapped a land for mana don't know what a planeswalker is. And everybody at Hasbro was like, okay, but everybody on Twitter was like, nah, I don't believe that. But that's true. So, like, <laughs> Bank of America can listen to our angry tweets, but at the same time, Hasbro kind of knows that, like, most cards are unsleeved. Yeah, and has always been true, right? And and as you grow the, the scope of the game, the amount of kitchen table magic has not shrunk. And I think that one of the reasons that very enfranchise longer-term players have trouble connecting with that is because their understanding of the magic ecosystem for many years was about organized play it was about winning fnm mm -hmm. going on to your your regional qualifier qualifying for the pro tour watching star city games on the on the saturday mornings and everyone quarter watching a pro tour that just felt like what magic was about and the thing is that 
competitive players have never been the ones who spend the most money on magic because they tend to lock into a deck. They do a lot of borrowing cards because they might want to switch the week after to as the meta shifts. And all of the like amateurs looking to be pros or pros I've ever spoken to, the vast majority of them have not had vast collections. Now, there are exceptions. There are definitely magic pros that have very impressive collections. But that's not who Wizards is targeting. I mean, the Booster Fund era has largely been about them realizing that they were undermining the whales. Yeah. That there was people that were willing to spend ten to 20000 a year on Magic. And they, they had no opportunity because been... they could only spend the 600 bucks every three months everyone else spent. Yeah. Because the most those guys would ever buy was like a case of booster boxes, which was about six hundred bucks. They were putting out four sets a year, so they at most they were spending three or four thousand. Maybe they traveled to some events and whatever, but that money didn't necessarily directly go into Wizards' pocket. Yeah. And that was also from an era previous to secret layers and their ability to sell direct to the market. So, you know, it's a big, big deal for them to transition into a product mix that recognizes that those people exist and plays into that i don't believe that that's in any way negative for the rest of the players the thing i heard repeatedly talking to people on twitter this week is that they feel burnt out or overwhelmed and this is something that you have expressed to me in the past as well so do you want to like walk me through your feelings on that well james my name is jason alt and for the last 10 years i've made all of my dollars for Magic the Gathering, a card game designed by a guy who really just wanted funding for an inferior board game and uh, doesn't like what Magic is now. So that was that was a, a decision I made to rely upon Magic for all of my for all of my money. This is just a this is a hobby for James that he's very good at. <laughs> but if if Magic went away entirely. Um, tomorrow, James would be like, no, I got to go to work. And I'll be like, oh, no. So I've doubled down on Magic the Gathering for like the last 10 years. As someone who has a realistic, I, I feel like I present a realistic take on what it takes to only make money from Magic. And that is you have to be lucky and you have to be diversified. So I'm spread out over quite a few platforms. I'm happy to be a uh, a writer and sometimes podcaster here at MTG Price, but I also write um, a very casual EDH-focused series on Cool Stuff, Inc., and I'm the content manager on two sites, EDHREC and Commander's Herald. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing magic stuff and making content, which is cool because it's my dream job. When I was like 13, I wanted to write for Duelist Magazine, but now I'm an adult. There is no more Duelist Magazine because there's no more magazines. What we have <laughs> is EDH Rec and MTG Price. And uh, this show's proud sponsor, Cool Stuff Inc., your source for cool stuff. And also, this just cool stuff. They don't have ink. That would be, that would, ink's not cool. It's, so they wouldn't have it. So just cool stuff. Go to cool stuff and use the uh, promo code, James, what is it? Yep, yeah, use that. Finance 5. Finance 5. Use the code finance five. That's the one. When you're reading my articles on cool stuff. Um, so you're, you're firmly entrenched in the community. You've been here a long time. You do this. You, you have to think about this all the time. So and you're anytime saying... something new comes out, I don't just say, Ooh, a new product. I say, okay, here's who I have to 
message to write this set review. I got to get this set review done. I have to have these people buy all these EDH decks, play against each other, get reimbursed, make all this content. I have to do this. I have to do a complete finance review of it. I have to do an EDH review of it. Everything is a lot of work. And when that was every three months, that was fine. But it's every three weeks now. Somebody at Hasbro went to some tech conference when they're like, you got to be in the headlines. And they're like, well, if we have a, a preview card every day of the week, then we're always in the headlines. So now we live in this hell world where every week is preview <laughs> week. And I haven't been able to get out of fight or flight mode. Right. Like when it's preview week, I'm like, oh, it's preview week. We're going to make some content. And you feel like a gladiator. So for like the last four of the last five years, it just felt rad when you would just gear up for content week and just make some content. And that happened every three months and then you get to rest. But now I'm constantly in fight or flight mode and it's actually like it's affecting my health. So <laughs> when I have my Twitter avatar, the guy who's trying to make lemonade out of lemons and he's out of containers and he's just getting pelted by lemons, I feel like I'm pelted by lemons now, do you feel sorry for me because you have a real big boy job and you have to you can't sleep until 10 o'clock and also you like have a 401k and stuff and you don't feel bad for me that is like, oh, I have a chemistry degree I won't use. I think I'll be content boy. Like I realize that that was a choice I made and I don't expect anybody to feel sorry for me. I'm just saying I am the canary in the coal mine. So when the person who has to make a ton of different kinds of varied content gets upset first, if I keel over, it's only a matter of time until you're like, you know what? I don't like shelling out 900 bucks every four weeks, and I think I will go play a different card game because there are a bunch of them. And also there's consoles and also there's virtual reality gaming now and in the home affordably. Uh, there's going outside and doing stuff. There's a billion things competing for my attention. Maybe I don't want to uh, play the game that makes me feel like I'm a rat in a Skinner box. So for me personally, I'm burnout. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be burnout because I am. I'm saying you're next or not. I don't know, but maybe, probably, <laughs> probably you're next. So, I mean, I, I wonder how much of the people expressing that they feel overwhelmed is really just FOMO that they, they know logically that they don't actually need to engage with the brand every time they, they drop a fresh preview, but they feel compelled to because they've gotten in the habit of paying attention. And when they set a, a higher pace requiring them to pay more attention, more frequently, yeah. they're having trouble adjusting like downshifting to uh, just a completely different state of mind on it. I haven't digested like, champion or the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. I feel like I haven't fully digested that set. And the fact that I was like, like, hey, guys, wait up. And they're like, that was 50 sets ago, bro. It just, it, it you know what? It feels like I never got a chance to enjoy anything. I'm like sure. Lucille Ball taking the chocolates off the conveyor belt and putting them in my mouth. I'm not enjoying them. I'm not enjoying sets of magic. I'm just stashing them in my cheeks, hoping I can just get through the shift. And I think they've taken my favorite thing and ruined it for me by just increasing the pace of the treadmill so Chris Cox can look like a better company saver. 
It just it feel, it feels like I'm a pawn in my own torture. So one guy can look good <laughs> for his bosses who work at a toy company. So so let's put let's put this in in specific perspective for 2022. There there are two sets that because of supply chain issues related to COVID presumably um, ended up landing in Q4 mm. that should have landed in the spring. So I'm referring to Infinity and the 40k Commander decks. It's hard for me to disentangle whether the pace is actually too quick, given that those all got squeezed in between. Like we basically had from September to November of this year, you have Dominaria United, the associated Commander products, then you have the 40k decks, you have Infinity, then you have brothers war and those those commander decks and that all lands within eight weeks but that wasn't how it was supposed to be i changed my so profile that had landed at this before q3 okay so you felt even in the in the first half of the year where we had neon dynasty i was having edh rec and commander's herald do separate set reviews i cut it down because people literally weren't volunteering to do set reviews because they didn't want to do it every two weeks or whatever you know um, I had to scale back how much and every site I write for also is scaling back how they do the, the preview content because a lot of a lot of writers um, don't get paid enough to be this stressed out. Well, there's a, and they also think the thing is from the content platform perspective, if the article is only going to be relevant as part of the hype cycle for half the time it used to be. Yeah. Paying yeah. The normal price tag it, for it is less appealing. The whole, the whole content production landscape right now feels Sisyphean, and again, I don't expect anybody who has a real job with responsibilities to feel bad for us. But at the same time, a lot of people aren't people who rely on magic for income. They're people who enjoy the game, who enjoy magic. Want two thousand extra Twitter followers because they write for Commanders Herald, right? You know, they want a little bit of hey, I know you. When they go to the the Magic Thirty, they want someone to ask them to sign their playmat so bad. Those are the people who are just getting so burnt out on it. It's not the people that are are basically forced to be content dancing monkeys like me because I. I I tied my entire future to this game. It's the people who are just doing it because like, hey, I'll write an article for some money and uh, this used to be fun and now it's not. So I think uh, I think when the people who have to who are forced to engage uh, get burnt out, I think it's only a matter of time before everybody else gets burnt out. So I'm just warning people that like maybe you don't empathize now. I'm saying you will. And by the time you do it may be too late for the whole game. Like it might be a collective, everybody being over magic because we've done 10 blocks in a year. So the thing is about that, my personal perspective that is presumably shared by others, although I couldn't tell you what percentage agree is just engage with what you want to engage with. One of the things that confuses me about the FOMO related to the constant hype cycle in the product stream is that, Let's say this was chess, and there was only one way to play it, and they had a release every three months, and then they quickened the pace to every month, and you have to keep up with the new pieces. They're changing the rules of chess all the time, and now to stay competitive in chess, you have to throw out everything you knew about chess for 
decades and you have to learn new rules every six weeks. The problem is obvious, right? Like you're, you're expecting a much higher level of engagement. You're expecting a much higher level of uh, continuing education as, as is required to interact with your product slash game. And that's super obvious to me. There are no, there are no chess forthos people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the part that is weird to me is that Magic is a platform for gaming. It's not a specific game. Yeah. And so when they put out a product like 40K, which is directly targeted at EDH players, if you're a Pioneer player, why are you burned out? You can just ignore that completely. It, you don't, none of those cards are relevant to you. You don't need to own any of them. You can't put any of them in your deck anyway. Because they're training you to ignore stuff. It used to be magic was magic, and then you're like, there's more magic. But now it's like, ah, ignore that, ignore that. And then after a while, you're like, well, I guess I'll just ignore all of it. They shouldn't be training their player base to ignore things. It's an interesting point. I, I have trouble, I don't know what the word is, It's accepting the psychology of it. Because I just can't, I can't connect to that myself. Like, the to me, it's just like, I will... Over the 30 years I've been involved with the game, I have ebbed and flowed. I have spent years where I barely bought any magic. I have, I'm in this period now where it's a huge chunk of my existence. And I may ebb out of the game again at some future point. But it doesn't, it just doesn't, like if, if something comes out and I don't have the bandwidth for it, I'm just going to totally ignore but, that. And but listen, on. when you ebbed out before, it was because of like, oh, you got busy in your life, you're doing other things, or the one set wasn't enough to keep you engaging, which, and how do we engage with Magic in 2003? We went to the LGS and we played like a couple games of Standard and a Booster Draft. Yeah. I was in college, like I didn't have time to be like doing all the Magic the Gathering when I was like a freshman. So... The way you used to get burnout, it was the way you used to ebb was not that you got burnout is like you just got you reprioritize other things. Yeah, yeah. You do another thing. But when I ebbed out of magic for nine months in like 2002 and tried to come back and it was tough and I had to wait till like, you know what? Mirrodin. Mirrodin looks cool. That's when I'm going to start again. So I took like a year and a half off just because I was busy in college. And then I took an excuse to get back in. And then I was in. And for somebody who kind of ebbs out and then comes back in, you you know there's going to be a certain amount of, like, prepping yourself. And, like, there's going to be mental energy to know, like, look, I'm going to feel lost in a game I used to feel comfortable in. I'm going to have to be okay with that. There's a bunch of shit I got to learn. I'm going to go learn it. You prep yourself for that. But people who are paying attention and creating content, I feel like I'm ebbed out. I don't feel engaged. I haven't built a deck with the Kamigawa commanders. I have them set aside. I was going to make the green dragon and I was going to make the red green commander deck guy where if you put an aura on something, it had goad. Sweet. I was going to build both those decks. Both those decks are 80% finished on my desk because I've built decks from the 25 sets that have come out since. I feel ebbed out, but I'm paid to pay attention and I'm creating a ton more content. I'm writing more articles. I'm building more decks than ever before, and I don't feel like I'm in it. I feel like I'm going so slowly that I'm not keeping up with magic when I'm creating content faster than I've ever created content. That's why I'm getting burnout. It's not that like I'm just 
you know, I'm just ebbing out because I've reprioritized. Magic is my priority, and I feel like I'm not doing it justice. I feel like I cannot keep up when I've never worked this hard. And that is why I feel burnout, because it seems like there's no end to it. I mean, I understand your position. Your your position makes perfect sense to me because you're on a treadmill and you have to run faster and faster because you generate. But the I content. still want to play Magic, though. What what's the content is fine, but my casual my ability to build a deck and play with it on a Wednesday is suffering. I can't. Yeah, but that makes sense. But that makes perfect sense to me, and it is very different than some of the other conversations I'm having with just random players because when your work is also your playground. It's not uncommon that being burnt out on the work segment will dampen your enthusiasm for the fun side of it. But when I'm talking to some random stranger player on Twitter about how they feel the same, they feel burnt out or overwhelmed or um, can't keep up is a phrase that's thrown around a lot. I do find myself wondering whether that is just a necessary cultural shift in our player base, like whether... I wonder hmm. whether we're actually doing damage or just changing. I, th- I, th- I think we have to be doing damage. I think in hell, it's Christmas every day. That's what I think. <laughs> and it, w- with it being spoiler season every day, it feels like it's Christmas every day, which makes me think I'm in hell. That's that's why I feel the way I feel, man. Like, nothing's if everything is a huge special release every day, then nothing's special. And if nothing's special, why am I playing a game where nothing's special? But also, everything's you, you, special, and it's four booster packs for $1,000, because it's that special. But also, eh, it doesn't matter. If you miss a set, just, like, wait, and another set will come along in two weeks, and you just pick it up right there. Right, so people don't have time to miss it, is what you're thinking. Yeah. I... I it, you can't have pizza for dinner every night. You'll get scurvy. There's no anticipation because it's in front of you all the time. Yeah. I really think that's it. And it's not just me because, like, look, nobody has my job. I'm an idiot. But people who play casually just are like, meh, I don't know. They're not feeling it. If people who are super enfranchised and people who aren't very enfranchised and everybody in between, they're all kind of saying, I don't know why, and maybe it's irrational, but I feel burnt out. And maybe it's on top of the pandemic because the pandemic screwed up all of our brains too. Either because we stayed home and missed a lot of social connections or because uh, we have long COVID from going to Applebee's. Either way, nobody is mentally the same as they were in 2019. So that's happening on top of this. We feel like we're being jabbed in the ribs with a stick every two weeks. So it's... We can't all be wrong. If everybody feels this way, whether or not what we're feeling feels irrational to anybody, it doesn't matter. We're all feeling that way. And I don't think it's a shared psychosis. I think it's a result of being jabbed in the ribs with a stick every two weeks and said, hey, wake up. There's more special shit. Go write an article. But if you don't write an article, it's like, hey, go think about how to build a deck. Go buy some cards like people have to do stuff to stay relevant with this game. And if, if they're doing it to the point where it's joyless now and they still aren't keeping up, what is to keep them doing it? I don't think anything. I think you can make people hate your game by force feeding it to them. And I think that's what's happened. Okay. I mean, the, the, the question then becomes, if that is in fact true, whether that will reflect on the bottom line. Because one of the things that could be happening is some percentage of the gaming po- the player base 
is pushed away from the game and goes from spending $1,400 a year to $600 a year. But if for every one of those players, that amount of lost revenue is made up by some whale that bought a case of collector boosters six times a year instead of two cases of standard boxes 10 years ago, they may not get the message. Because this is also happening at a time where they're now selling direct to consumer. They have these extremely high margin products like the 30th anniversary $1,000 booster packs or the, you know, every six weeks to eight weeks secret layer mega drop where they're expecting you to to send them anywhere from $50 to $1,000 to get all the latest stuff direct from. And I'm curious whether they are aware of the potential burnout whether they're seeing it on the bottom line and where things go from here. I, I think they have to know they can't rely entirely on a dwindling supply of whale oil. It's 2022. We can't be relying on whale oil. That's a nice supplement, you know, to get us through to solar panel technology. I've completely lost the thread of my own metaphor. I'm sorry. The point is <laughs> they have to know it's not sustainable because like, if six million magic players stop playing magic, that'll that'll take a long time and that'll be noisy. But if like a hundred and fifty whales stop, you know, that's like a lot of money just sh- shutting off like a faucet all at once. I don't know if they'll be ready for the shock of it. And I don't think they're going to know that what one specific thing they did made all the whales be like, you know what? I just I've been hunted to extinction. There are definitely people that I've talked to this week that would be yelling at us if they were in this conversation that the Bank of America thing is proof positive that that they're already seeing it. But the thing about that is, and I've had this conversation so many times this week, no, that's that's not what the Bank of America thing said. Pretty much every point they made was trivial and silly and, and does not actually reflect on the bottom line. Sure. The, sure. the thing about, like, let's talk about the $1,000 booster packs for a second. It's a cash grab. It's largely nonsense. It's still a collectible. As long as they do, they underprint it instead of overprint it, it can still be a success for them because the margins are so high. Even if they do, they only sell whatever, fifty thousand boxes or whatever, that would still be a major win. And did it generate negative goodwill in the community? Yes, definitely it seems to have done that. Is is it is the extra revenue worth that? Mm, debatable because you've, you're balancing an intangible that may or may not lead to reduced sales for the people that are offended against the collectors who will presumably buy the thousand dollar one also the community quote-unquote is five percent of the 25 percent of people who know what a planeswalker is sure yep there's that that's another thing hasbro knows is like they can piss off all the jason alts in the world and i'm just i'm a, a hundredth of a percentage of like the the billions of people who just see a a booster pack at walmart and take it home I'll put it to you this way. Whether or not the $1,000 packs do well should not and will not have a direct impact on Hasbro shares. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's too small of a project overall for this multi-billion dollar company. And the 30th anniversary packs are like a $25 or $50 million product, project size total. And it's an experiment. If anything, a Wall Street analyst who's profit hungry and looking for the share price to go up should be clapping that they're trying to move from $100 boxes to $1,000 boxes because if the market actually bears that 
then it's an it's an unexplored market segment they probably yep. should have they been were underselling the they were underselling yeah. for 30 years when they could have been yeah yeah and and that's the thing is that players need to get their head straight that it's totally okay for some products to not be for them and i know that that has that not for you thing has really pissed a lot of people off it's not for me how dare you but it's like I don't understand why people are confused by that. Pick any other segment in your life, from food to clothing to housing to travel, whatever. It's all stratiated across price points. In every other aspect of your life, when you're buying something, most of it's not for you. It's either below your 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 price point to value ratio or it's above it. You probably buy a normal backpack, but you could buy a $5 backpack that falls apart after two weeks, you could buy a $8,000 backpack from Gucci. But, the, the, but yeah, but like the striations before were like, hey man, you don't have money for a console, but you have like 50 bucks to play FNM. The game is for you. And now it's like, well, parts of the game, I, I don't know. It just, I, 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 it doesn't have to be rational. How people are feeling based on how they're being treated, you could tell them they're wrong, but like, it yeah, it's not going to change. Yeah, it's not going to change how they feel about it. I I just wonder how much of the community reaction to most of what Wizards does could be corrected with a by just getting your head on straight, because there's a lot of stuff to me that just looks completely normal once you accept that you're dealing with a for-profit company, and that doesn't mean you're supposed to cheer for it. It doesn't mean you're supposed to like the thousand-dollar packs. You should vote with your wallet and not buy them, and by all means, raise your voice on on Twitter and tell them you don't like them. That's those are your rights as a consumer and a and a you know in enfranchised player who wants the company to service your particular needs. That all makes sense to me. But you should not be surprised when a, a multi billion dollar company who's under pressure to grow their stock price is looking at ways to expand the number of SKUs in the product line that has the highest margins for them. I mean that's just was always going to happen. I think if we get this many products next year, it'll feel better because it won't be an inc- it will be as many or fewer as we we're used to this year. I think with the number of products tripling, it just it was too. Well, much. here's the thing: like people people seem to think that like the Bank of America downgrade is a direct attack on Wizard's strategy for Magic, and as much as the notes made it sound like that was the case, that's just because the analyst is an idiot. Like those, those yeah. are terrible, terrible note hooks to hang your hat on if you're trying to attack Hasbro. It seemed like John Finkel wrote that for them. Yes, that's exactly the kind of thing I was thinking when I saw it. It looked like something that the activist investors fed to that analyst to attempt to drive a narrative that Magic players will not necessarily like. There's the whole thing about the activist investors trying to take over the Hasbro board and then spin Wizards off. Travis and I talked about this on cast at the time. Any player who assumes that means magic would get better. Do not hold your breath. You don't know that that's the case at all. You don't know because you don't know who the new owner would be and you don't know what their game plan would be. And it's entirely possible that their game plan would be even more greedy. We just spent the the last like three years watching every magic person who we thought was smart from Tom Martell to Zvi Mauschewitz show their ass on Twitter. Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's cool that you like used to think 
Zweimashowitz was swart because he took Taylor's faithful a lot in booster draft. But like, holy shit, man, a lot of those <laughs> a lot of those people who you were rooting for just because you like liked watching them play magic uh, have revealed that they're really good at at playing magic and you're their opponent, right? Like you shouldn't root for them when they are going to extract as much money from magic as possible, no matter what happens to magic. It just, it, it seems weird to root for people like that, but I, you know, I don't know. Elon Musk has, <laughs> has uh fanboys. Maybe John Finkel is just magic's Elon. Who knows? I, my, my bottom line is this. They, I, I think that, if people think that Wizards is going to respond to a stock downgrade by pulling back on product, they are fucking dreaming. The reason they're pushing product is because they are under pressure from corporate to to milk the magic cow as hard as they can. Now, that might be short-sighted. It's possible that they push enough people off the game that it sends them into a downward spiral. But we we haven't hit that spiral yet. And even if you told me that the... 2022 results some total were going to be worse than the 2021 results my response would be like we got to dig deeper like there's a lot of nuance as i was saying about what's going on in the global economy what's going on with the money supply what's going on with crypto what's going on with collectibles as a result of that the difference between consumption habits of collectibles during the covid lockdown periods and in 2022 and there's there's a lot. There's a lot going on. It's not as simple as they tried thousand dollar booster packs and and now they're in the they're in the gutter as a result. That product hasn't even come out yet, so none of us know whether it is good for the company or bad for the company. We just know how we feel about the product. We know how in, like in, in yeah, specific. we know how Magic Twitter felt about it. And as much as Magic Twitter likes to feel that Magic Twitter is magic. It's not. It's they're only a, se- they're only a segment of the of the game, and the real the real question is whether things like the universes beyond program is bringing in enough fresh eyeballs and translating into sales on things like the forty k decks that sold very well by all accounts in the forty k community. Does that make up for anybody that is an enfranchised player who was only kind of like a modest spender anyway and gets pushed off the game a bit or takes a hiatus or buys half what they used to? You need access to a lot of data before you can confidently say that we're headed in the wrong direction. And you probably shouldn't uh, criticize Wizards Corporate if you were surprised when they said that only, what, 25% of people who play Magic know what a Planeswalker is? Yeah, because if if the majority of Magic sales are still to casuals, Mm -hmm. and we don't just mean EDH players, we mean people that play at their kitchen table with random decks that they throw together. yeah. Yeah. If, if that is the majority of buying that goes on and this explosion of SKUs is largely irrelevant to them because th- that a lot of those SKUs aren't even available at Walmart where they're buying their product, then it's neither here nor there. That expansion of SKUs being specifically in the view of the most enfranchised players slash whales is totally fine if the whales are pulling their weight. And from within MDG Price Pro Trader, I can tell you, we are. (laughs) For sure, almost all of us spend more on Magic than we did five, ten years ago. For sure, all of us are at a much heightened level of engagement. Now, I I definitely am too, and I I feel like I've done a decent job of, like, 
kind of cordoning that off from how I feel about the other stuff going on. Like, I, I feel like as a pro trader, I'm like, yeah, I'm spending more, but I, I don't feel shitty about it. I feel worse about my inability to make decks than I feel about my tendency to buy collector boosters by the caseload. That's that's my shit, right? That's not magic doing that. I'll tell you on my end as a collector slash player, I would never want to go back to the pre-booster fun era. I love being in the era where there are tons of borderless cards. There are tons of alternate art cards. Yeah. There's all these cross partnerships. There's all these experiments with, because I primarily appreciate the game aesthetically from a designer's point of view, having been a graphic designer for many years. So I want my cards to look sick and they don't always, you know, some treatments are better than others. Some things go better. You know, there was a, a an era up, period of time there were like the commander legends foils were just so embarrassingly oh jesus um you know prone to curling that it, some things were problematic but on the whole i'll take experiments some of which fail some of which succeed all day every day over not over, trying anything new yeah 10 years ago where it was just like every year exactly the same thing and you drafted and you played some standard and yeah. it was either modern far be it or for me to complain about the secret layer stuff considering everybody knows I'm building all eight street fighter decks I'm going to put them in a cube yeah and they and they get they get me with that stuff yeah more more often than not they, with every drop people go oh another drop but I still buy something like sometimes it's spec and sometimes it's just that is totally fucking cool and I want to own that and put it in my decks and put it on webcam and show it to somebody so, I mean, this this idea that that the criticism of Wizards is going to be absorbed and translate into a slower pace, we already know what the products list is for next year. There's an extra standard set, if I'm not mistaken. So, <laughs> if you didn't like 2022, you're sure as fuck not going to like 2023. It's only going to get faster. And all I can say to people is, if you love this game and you're trying to find your way past the FOMO work on that like figure out what parts of the game you like the most and only worry about the game from that angle it'll it'll be easy to only worry about what affects you next year when the housing market collapses and you <laughs> you don't have any you have a tenth of the magic spending income you had this year you know the, it's funny though because you say that but we've talked a few times on this cast about how the biggest recessions magic has done well yeah because it's it's one of those things where like i do not have two grand to go to disney but i sure as shit have five bucks to play fnm exactly and and that's the thing it's like it's like cigarettes or booze it's actually going to do well in a recession not, not the contrary Yeah, movie theaters do real well and it seems frivolous but at the same time it's like nope a trip to the movies was my vacation unfortunately all right, we've uh, we've been in on this for a while. We still got some stuff to do with this new set, unfortunately. Brothers War, Brothers War. So you're you're burnt out, but do you uh, like not like Brothers War? Brothers War is not the problem. <laughs> All right. It's how many Brothers Wars there are. This is the set's good. I like it. Um, there's cool stuff going on. It's an artifacty set, but the colors matter. There's uh, I don't know. There's cool stuff in this set. I I'm I'm into it. All right, let's talk about some talk about some of these cards. Twenty-two commanders in the base set plus uh, ten different Urzas and ten different Maishras and all the different products. It's it's a lot. 
Let's talk about some of the cards that are likely to be EDH staples, since that is generally your core focus. The Might Stone and Weak Stone. Five mana legendary artifact. It is... Uh, when it enters the battlefield, it says, draw two cards, or target creature gets minus five, minus five until end of turn, and then you get to tap it for two mana, and this mana can't be spent to cast non-artifact spells. The card also merges with Urza Lord Protector. Can you see playing this? And turns into Urza Planeswalker. Could you see playing this outside of Urza decks? Because apparently people are. Because this has been added to more decks than are registered for Urza. So our people so just... So Dynamo is four mana for to get three mana every turn from then on. This only gives me two. I can only spend it on non... Uh, can't be spent on anything but artifacts. And it draws two cards or kills something on the way in. So I'm overpaying for my mana rock. Yeah, this has, but... to, this has to be an Urza card. Almost... Like I, I can't see playing this outside of an Urza deck, especially paying four bucks for this. I can't. I don't see it. The thing is, it's not that hard to to tutor for either side of this. So I would argue that it's not necessarily an Urza deck card, but it is an artifact deck card. But it it needs Urza's it, blue white color identity. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, yes, yes. But I would say that like you're often in blue white or Jeskai or Brea colors. If you're messing around with artifacts, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, EDH, so that that's not I, terrible. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I think that this is um, this is being overrepresentative because it 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 goes in basically all the Urza decks, and Urza is the number one. I think the number one most impactful card of this set is actually Lauren of the Third Path, and I wanted to spend more time talking about her than Mightstone and Weakstone, which I think is being overrepresented in the data. I'd I'd also suggest that as this is a rare and not a mythic. They're going to get real cheap. So, and I also agree with you. I think the most, like the card most likely to see the highest level of play in EDH is indeed Lauren of the Third Path. This is a card that comes into play, destroys an artifact or an enchantment, and then taps to draw you and another opponent a card. Yes? Fantastic. What a good card. What a card. Because the ability to destroy an artifact or enchantment is if anything underplayed in EDH. I've played... Oh, and having it on your commander? Ooh. Well, and you can play this as a commander, but it also just fits into the 99 of most white decks, right? Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You want, the, you want the effect anyway, and the ability to negotiate with opponents in commander is almost certainly underrated. Like, I've always thought scheming symmetry is, like, probably the best tutor in the format and wildly underplayed versus its numbers they gave white a much 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 better reclamation sage and that is wild that's wild to me that they would do that but hey people complained that white kind of got short shrift in edh for a couple years and they have really spent the last couple years ramping up to making white feel like it could stand on its own and uh cards like this really 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 help Especially considering what I think is the next best card in sets, white also. I'm assuming you're talking about Myrel, Shield of Argive. Ooh, what a card. What a card. Three and a white for a 3-4 human soldier legend. During your turn, your opponents can't cast spells or activate abilities of artifacts, creatures, or enchantments. That's a $50 ability, right? Yeah, I mean, that, sh- that shuts down so much action. Yeah. Whenever Myrel... Shield of Argive attacks, create X 1-1 colorless soldier artifact creature tokens, where X is the number of soldiers you control. 
I could see fooling around with that in Ginny Fay and building up some soldiers and then eventually turning a bunch of things into cats. Any token deck, honestly. I mean, Morel Shield of Argive with uh, a noted procession out makes two soldiers and then it makes uh, six. So I don't know. It seems fine. Yeah, this is a strong one. This mythic is currently going for about sixteen or seventeen dollars. I would imagine it is going to fall. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, they're they're going to be. It's like every set. There's going to be four cards worth more than three dollars in a week, unless this ends up being a major standard slash pioneer card. But by all accounts, standard is you know on very rickety legs these days, not being very widely played compared to its heyday. And I don't think that this is a pioneer card. It, I could see it as maybe a one or a two of in the white. It's worse than Hero of Bladehold, which is also like about the same amount of money. Uh, partnering with Mightstone and Weakstone, we do have Urza, Lord Protector. This one's interesting because there's nothing about this that forces it to be played with the Mightstone and Weakstone. I mean, you probably are throwing the Mightstone and Weakstone in the deck if you're, if yeah, you're running if, this. Yeah. But the, the base ability on this is just good. It's one white blue for a 2-4 human artificer. Artifact, instant, and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. That's just Bonkers. So I, I would imagine you'll see plenty of this getting played in EDH for years to come. And that might pull along the Mightstone and Weakstone just be, by association. I mean, you're never going to be embarrassed to play Mightstone and Weakstone if you've got Urza in your deck. Yeah, I mean, it's no Thran Dynamo, but like maybe it's a better meteorite. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's probably a solid analysis. We've also got Phyrexian Portal that people have been fooling around with in uh, modern lately. That's a very Canadian a... way to pronounce Portal to Phyrexia. <laughs> Nine mana for an artifact that says when it enters the battlefield, each opponent sacks three creatures. And then, then at the beginning of your upkeep, put target creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. It's a Phyre- it's Phyrexian in addition to its other types. So if you've got a way to get this into the yard and then get it back out of the yard, you are off to the races. If only there were a million magic cards that do that. Mm. Yeah. So we've seen pressure on Goblin Engineer lately as a result. I, I, I've liked Engineer a lot. If, if you read my articles, which you should, they are free every Thursday. Um... I've brought up Goblin Engineer every month, probably for the last year and a half. So, uh, Welder Engineer, um, scra- Trash for Treasure, I think, Scrap Mastery, all that stuff. Um, Mishra plus, uh, oh, what's the um, Decepticon guy? <laughs> the, 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 uh, Who's the evil Optimus Prime? What's his name? The guy that turns into a gun. Nemesis Prime? Who? who t- oh, Megatron? Megatron, yeah. He's not an evil Optimus Prime, but sure. Oh, come on. Listen, man. I was a Masters of the Universe guy. I'm not going to apologize for not liking Transformers. <laughs> I just happened to have an older cousin who gave me all of his old He-Man guys and that made the decision He-Man. for me. He-Man. I wasn't, I wasn't Thundercats, at least Transformers people, and I can agree on that. Listen, um... Uh, one of the Transformers, I believe, it's probably, it's the, the guy that turns into a gun. Megatron. Megatron. Uh, but also Starscream, I think. Starscream's number three. He was the guy that turned into, like, the weird giant boombox. Uh, 
That's sound wave. That, that's that's sound wave. I'm a 13 foot tall boombox. Don't mind me. Oh, Starscream was the plane. Yeah, sound wave was the yeah, boombox. Yeah. But anyway, uh, both Soundwave and Megatron decks are are doing artifacty stuff and tokeny stuff. So as much as I have no idea whether the Transformer stuff will impact the market enough to affect any of the prices on this stuff, it still makes sense to pay attention to what those decks are playing. And that's what I did on MTG Price this week. And if you're a pro trader, you can access that right now. Uh, how about Demolition Field being a field of ruin that... Uh, I've seen doesn't have a so many commander. people say that they're replacing Field of Ruin or Ghost Quarter in their EDH deck with this. This feels like a staple moving forward. That sounds hyperbolic, but I think Foils of Demolition Field are 100% a play. They're held back by how... Uh, common they will be in the collector boosters yeah yeah um and how much of the ev is being sucked up by the ultra rare chase cards in this set this this set gives me battle for zendikar vibes most of the set has to crater entirely and then there'll be some stuff that picks up further down the road but nothing picked up in battle for zendikar Mm, like it was like ulamog was in that set yeah (laughs) ceaseless hunter yeah ulamog did just fine Ulamog went from like sub twenty dollars to almost sixty five. The rest of that set was just such trash. I don't think Brothers War is trash though. Market price on Ulamog right now is seventy six dollars on TCG Player. Whoops, a Daisy. But you wish you'd pick those up at eighteen. I know I do. But there's there are forty five to fifty dollar copies lying around, so. It's it has ebbed and flowed, but it, it did pretty I, well. I, I mean, Battle for Zendikar doesn't have a whole lot else going on. That's for Demolition sure. Field seems like a special. This is the new land that does this shit land that they saved for this set. Demolition Fields feels like a special card to me. And again, collector boosters completely smashed the concept of foil. But like, don't bulk these out. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, they'll be. A, they will end up on breaking bulk at some point for sure. The there's a wake in the woods. This is the one that makes uh, for X one one green forest dryad land creature tokens. That card is messed up. Yeah. And then you cast toxic deluge the next turn to clean that nonsense up. If if that's the kind of person you are, you <laughs> dirty attracts a player. <laughs> I, I I did kill somebody's first turn dryad with a wild growth or something on it the other day to slow down Joda. Oh. There should so be a lot. Woods. That's, pre- that's a pretty cool mythic. Tokazia's Welcome looks to me like it'll see us all. Oh, that's a magic this card. Is... Goodness. Every time you play a small creature, you draw a card. But it's turn, it's it's mistaken. a welcoming vampire that can't kill. And maybe welcoming vampire is yep, yep, good yep. because it's a flying gray ogre. Or maybe it's good because it you don't have to pay the mana for it. Uh, I just know Tokazia's Welcome is not a $1 card. We've also got Teferi, Temporal Pilgrim. This is a four loyalty, five mana Planeswalker. Whenever you draw a card, put a loyalty counter on Teferi. For zero, draw a card. For minus two, create a 2-2 blue spirit creature token with Vigilance, and whenever you draw a card, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. And then minus 12, this target opponent chooses a permanent they control and returns it to their hand. Then they shuffle each non-land permanent they control into their owner's library. So if you want to destroy one person in your EDH game, this does a pretty solid job. 
also interacts with so many different cards in EDH. I think people are going to be excited about Liberator Urza's Battlethopter. That one's a cool one, too. Perhaps. Just, I don't know. It seems like one of those goofy artifact commanders that someone's going to play a bunch of, like, I don't know. It's going to, I think it's going to be like a one mana artifact um, semblance anvil deck. And then you just like play a bunch of free artifacts and put two counters on Liberator and just punch somebody in the face. I think that would be very funny. Is Transmogrant's Crown close enough to Skull Clamp to see play? I significant play in EDH. Sure, if only because it's going to be cheaper than um, Skull Clamp. The fact that it can't kill the creature is, you know, it, it's less than ideal. But at the same time, uh, I, I think Skull Clamp is a very good card, and having like fifty cent versions of good cards makes them be so desirable they stop being fifty cents. I think that's how it's that certainly works. interesting that if you're in a black skull clamp deck and you add crown. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, now you can, you can potentially crown then clamp and draw two. Yeah. Plus a skull clamp, uh, a, a black deck is going to be running cranial plating too. So then you're just, you're complete nonsense. You're just up to some, some garbage over there. I, yep. I love it. I like being up to nonsense. I, I could see like foil extended arts or extended arts of trend Mogren's crown being something if they get super, super cheap. All right. So that's all I've got really for like top EDH, like B to S tier staples. And I'd say the only S I see in here is Lauren of the third path and demolition field. The yeah. rest of it is A's and B's. Awake in the woods is, you know, a definite A. Uh, I kind of like, um, I kind of like Argoth sanctum of nature. Makes sense. But um, I mean, for, for the rest of the set, it's it's pretty mid. You've got some like really fringy stuff, like Visions of Phyrexia and one with the multiverse. But I, as far as staples go, this set seems a little bit too. I don't know. I think um, I think the Urza Lord Protector, Queen Caleb Ben Krug, and Myrel Shield of Argive decks are going to be profoundly boring. I don't think. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't think anybody's doing. I think the only interesting deck in like the top ten is Tano's the Toy Maker. I think Myrel is very much just like oh boy, soldiers that deck. Uh, Queen Kayla Ben Krug is exactly the the artifact um, Strixhaven deck with like any new card that's been printed since. It just seems like there's not a lot that's the stuff that's really obvious always gets glommed onto, and I'm like I get that. That's why something obvious that you can also build a billion different ways, like Atraxa, has attracted so many people. Because I often yeah. think, like, what is it about Atraxa that they could capture again? But really, what, a, what about Atraxa is everybody sees Atraxa and they see the 99 cards they want to throw in it in their head the second they read the card. But it's 99 different cards for everybody. You know, not all decks are like that. Sometimes they're tiny bones and you're like, all right, I'm going to build the same deck everybody else's so i think there are a lot of i'm gonna build the same deck everybody else's commanders in the top five here but i think tanos the toy maker uh maybe urza prince of krug and uh, takasia dig site mentor are gonna be a little bit more exciting but who cares about exciting man that everyone's gonna forget about this set in two weeks anyway so <laughs> Well, 
We have, for Pioneer and Modern, I think the cards on most people's radar are Diabolic Intent. Yeah. Uh, unclear whether a demonic tutor that requires you to sack a creature can find its way in Modern. I think the, the main issue is that it didn't have a default shell to slide into other than, say, uh, Yogmoth, where it does reasonable work right off the bat. Uh, so I think, you know, work has, Aspiring Spike and others have been testing the card jury is still out whether it will find a find a role to play in the format but given that it inter- has future forward interaction potential uh i don't think it's crazy to keep your eye on that one third path iconoclast is a young pyromancer variant that i could certainly see in pioneer modern you know we don't even see young pyromancer decks for the most part in modern um although there have been some some fringy decks that have fooled around with with token strategies in the last couple of years so i'd keep an eye on iconoclast as an uncommon that could be end up being worth money if the combination of standard and pioneer and potentially edh um gets it there pyrexian dragon engine gives me you know red mid-rangey vibes for standard and pioneer at minimum where they're gonna put a bunch of pressure on the table empty their hand play this 2-2 double striker for three, it's going to get killed, then they're going to bring it back, draw three more cards, and roll on. Um, And if they choose not to kill it to avoid filling your hand, then they got to deal with the 2-2 double striker every turn. Recruitment Officer looks like a solid uh, white humans card in Pioneer, where like in the mid-game you can start mana sinking into it to draw additional threats. Um, So that seems solid. And then Arcane Proxy is, you know, a situational Snapcaster Mage that has some potential, uh, at least in Standard and Pioneer, and Modern is is definitely a question mark. They've, there's been a lot of sort of Snapcasters over the years that have never quite, quite gotten there, so they've largely been traps. Felden Ronom Excavator has kind of got Ragavani vibes, like a, it looks like a really, like, uh, a deck... A card that is likely to show up as a four of in some aggro red deck during its its uh, its term and standard. And if I was looking at any of those as potential specs, I would think Diabolic Intent uh, is probably the one I would keep my eye on most closely. Yeah, that's kind of boring, but I I don't know. I can't disagree. I, I won't imply I know more about Pioneer slash Modern than anybody else on the planet. <laughs> I think my six-year-old knows about as much as about Pioneer and Modern as I do at this point. Alara started reading cards to me on Arena today, and I realized it's almost time to teach her the game, so that was pretty exciting. I'm slowly putting together a unicorn deck for Lily. Yeah, I I will send me the list, because I'm sure that will be the request on this end as well. <laughs> All right, uh, where can people find you online, Jason? Hey, everybody, I'm Jason E. Alt uh, on Twitter. I'm a writer at mtgprice.com, and I have been for nearly a decade. So if you recognize my name, that's where I'm from. If you don't recognize it from there, perhaps you've read my articles on coolstuffinc.com, where I write every single Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. Uh, about Elder Dragon Highlander, a subformat for Magic the Gathering. I'm the content manager for commanders herald and edhrec.com and i'm a member of the brainstorm brewery mtg lifestyle podcast and an occasional guest on this one uh my favorite mtg finance podcast now you've done your first ever co-host gig here on episode 350 feels good 
You folks can find me on Twitter at MGGCritic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com, including my recent article on uh, five underpriced premium cards for EDH. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I can personally vouch for the Pro Trader Discord. As someone who considers himself a member and not a staff member, uh, I can vouch for it. <laughs> Fair enough. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com, where you can find all sorts of nerdy cool stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at www.CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of the MTG Fast Finance podcast. As always, I really enjoyed our discussion today, James. Uh, copy you wrote for someone who's uh, co-hosted more than once, but I'll take it. Thanks, James. As always, <laughs> I really enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you so much for helping out this week, Jason. And we will catch all of you next week on episode 351 of MTG Fast Finance.